This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about Mary Midgley's evolution as religion, strange hopes, and stranger fears. And let me tell you, they should have just appended a third one, strange book. <laughs> you stole my joke. I was ah. going to make that joke. Ah, it's right there. It's, it's one of those jokes where they just leave it hanging out there for you. Strange hopes, stranger fears, and strangest book. Uh, I don't know if go. this is the strangest book, but it is no. a very strange book. Yeah. So the backdrop here is that this book was written in 1985, and once again, Chris and I have disparate <laughs> versions. I have the original 1985 version, which once again has an amazingly 80s cover that we will so dive into the show notes and the 2002 reprint has a very nicely designed still quirky but less 80s cover which will probably be the version that goes in the chapter art in the podcast <laughs> that's right there's a lot fewer wingtip shoes in the uh 2002 version a lot more hominid skeletons though it's a thing so in 1985, which places this in a particular historical context, there are some debates going on in science and in the philosophy of science that are spilling over from the late 60s and 70s into the 80s. One of these involves Richard Dawkins, which you may be familiar with from <laughs> the, other Wait, ventures. the 80s? I thought I knew that was going on in the 2000s. Yes, he didn't yeah. stop. He didn't stop, although... Mary Midgley <laughs> really wishes he had. <laughs> That's where I was going with that. And so there's some historical context that, honestly, I did not even know the major details of. I know the, the rough outline sketch of the sort of popper versus everybody else view of science, and then the, the nature of the golden escalator and the arguments against evolution as a religion, which is really only about one third of her argument. So it's kind of a misleading title in that it's really only one third of what the book's about. But if she had titled it better, perhaps it would have been Things Science Isn't and <laughs> Things That I Think It Should Stop Doing. That would have been a little bit less catchy a title, though. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it would have been as provocative and maybe even more longstanding. Who wouldn't want to pick that book up? Probably a lot of people. That's actually true. That's actually true. <laughs> the other thing I have to observe before we actually dig into what she says here is that insofar as evolution as a religion is one of her themes, if she didn't like Dawkins, boy, imagine what would have happened if she'd met Ray Kurzweil. Oh, man. There would have been... She may have. <laughs> she was alive when Kurzweil was doing his thing. It's true. She probably lost her mind. Oh, man. Trying to... Although, even... at the same time, she may also have looked at him and been like, look at that comic book writer over there. He's not even <laughs> worth my time. That that may well may well have been. The fact that Dawkins is worth her time is because Dawkins was actually influential in science, much less in Silicon yeah. Valley. But before we keep adding into our second episode, let's talk about our first episode. <laughs> so Mary Midgley wants you to know that lots of scientists place evolution specifically, and that's her hook here, but really science as a way of knowing, science as an epistemology, also in the position of a value-defining, an ethical 
structure or system, an ethology, as she often says throughout the book, mm-hmm. and this is bad and wrong, and they should stop doing it. It is insufficient to the task to which they have put it, if not exactly always for the reasons which they have taken it to be wrong in the past. So in broad strokes, the first half to two-thirds of the book are much more focused on evolution specifically The last third, she does the genealogical move and says, okay, but this really goes back way beyond the current evolutionary arguments. Let's talk Hume. Let's talk Kant. Let's talk a bunch of earlier philosophers. Let's talk Descartes. She does not like Descartes. She's grumpy. And... Her argument is effectively, up until chapter 17, these are not actually going to give you the results that you want because you're smuggling in a bunch of assumptions. Effectively, she thinks... A lot of the values work that these scientists want to do is basically just repackaging existing philosophical, ethical commitments from Christianity, but wanting to get rid of the Christianity and talk about these things in terms of pure science, because we can do this with just ra- without even having rationalism on the scene. We can just work this all out yeah. empirically. She will have none of this. But then the last two chapters, are they're very interesting. So we'll try to summarize the first 16 chapters, and we're going to try to do this a little faster than we summarized the book last time. Sorry, that that got a little long. We got a little carried away, but it was important. We're going to try to summarize these many more chapters faster. One positive thing I want to say about the book, independent of all the argumentation, my copy at least is beautifully typeset. And another positive thing I want to say about the book is she makes her arguments very briefly in each chapter. So most of the chapters range between five and 10 pages, which I really appreciated because it meant I could pick this up in between many other things going on in my life, Mm -hmm. get through a chapter and go back to whatever other things I needed to in my life. So good job, Midgley. Good job at recognizing that you don't need to have 200 pages to make an argument. There's another book I'm reading where none of the chapters are shorter than 75 pages long. Oh boy, it's hard to get through anything in that. I, for my part, will say that I liked the fact that, once again, 90% of the arguments that she makes are coherent and understandable. Mm -hmm. And so you can read it and be like, wow, I disagree. But the reason you can disagree is because you can actually understand what you're disagreeing (laughs) with. So once again, we credit good writing, good prose, good Mm -hmm. thinking. This book is not a Kurzweil book where everything is just sludge from the beginning to the end. (laughs) It It is a thoughtful book. We disagree with some things, but it is a thoughtful book. The other thing I appreciate is even beyond Chris's very accurate representation of the short chapters, they even have chapter headers within the chapters. Like it's the mm-hmm. most helpful book. It tells you exactly what it's trying to do. It's so great. The only other book we read this year that had those was Kurzweil, well, and it was not well, I mean, helpful. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Like sometimes <laughs> it was helpful in giving me places to stop. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So the basics of this book are that at the beginning, she says there are basically two problems with sociobiology, which is the arm of science that she argues uh, comes out of uh, misappropriated Darwinian thought, but was actually floating around before Darwin. She points particularly to Lamarck and Lamarck's idea of this ladder, Mm -hmm. evolutionary ladder. And in particular, she wants you to know that that's not how evolution works. It's not a case of things all being 
progressively better than other things. It is, as Darwin famously pictured it, a tree in which there are many leaves, there are many, many branches. Paths. And it, it in this framing, a human is not better than a dolphin as an evolutionary outcome, or than a bacterium, a very long down the chain of bacteria bacterium. They are very yeah. different outcomes and paths along this evolutionary chain. She asserts that it's random. This is an important part that they don't agree with, is that evolution is a set of random mutations and therefore a, a random process. It's not a purposive and it's not a directive process. I'm going to note for our listeners, we're not actually going to get into much, if at all, our particular takes on evolutionary biology or the relationship of evolution and Christian ideas about the book of Genesis, because we're primarily going to be talking about Midgley here. And Midgley is not particularly interested in creationism. She's not interested in religion. Like, Correct. I'm pretty amazed that it even made it into the title of the book. <laughs> Wolf, she is rough yeah. on religion. If you're interested in our opinions on evolution vis-a-vis Christian thought, we would be happy to answer your emails. I will answer them after I talk to Chris about what his opinions are. I, I might even actually get around to answering an email on that subject. Oh, wow, that'd be <laughs> awesome. Yeah, because I, I have my own opinions, but Chris's are different than mine. I haven't even talked to Chris, and I know his opinions are different <laughs> than mine. So there you are. But so we're going to cover that outside the box. But inside the box, we're going to talk about how the process of scientific evolution and its theoretical bounds and how those theoretical bounds have been expanded is or is not appropriate. So she points to the golden ladder, but then she also points over to the opposite end of the sociobiological spectrum, which is the nature red and tooth in claw argument, mm -hmm. which is to say that, okay, everything's random and everyone's trying to survive out here, which means that everyone's in biological contest with everyone else all the time forever. And any sort of cooperation that exists is merely a ploy to continue surviving. It is not there for any sort of actual cooperation. It's merely the best survival tactic employable at that time. Right. She quotes repeatedly a provocative notion from a working scientist of the day who states that all altruism is just a lie. Ooh. It's There's no such thing as altruism at all. Everything is actually just selfishness, and even the pretension to the opposite is deep hypocrisy. It's pretty intense. Yeah. I was surprised that that statement even exists, really. It's one of those where it's like, wow... Yeah, if I saw that, I would definitely want to write something <laughs> to say that that's not true. That's not good. Wow. So she she characterizes the sociobiologists and many other scientists, the red in tooth and nature red in tooth and claw scientists, we could call them, as people who have taken observations about competition and about biological evolution and turned these into universalizing forces of history and destiny for life in the universe and everything, as well as describing whether there is meaning to existence, whether there can be meaning to existence, whether human or any other kind of biological society can ever have any sort of altruism in it, etc. And to all of this, she says, you're dumb. Let me prove it repeatedly by bludgeoning you with my arguments. 
Now, most of her bludgeoning is actually quite accurate. I wrote a blog post about this, which we'll link in the show notes. She bludgeons not inaccurately, but boy, does she bludgeon. There are many chapters of bludgeoning of saying, look, you can have biological evolution. Let's posit that. Let's say this is true. She thinks it's certainly true. And that doesn't mean that humans are its apex, nor that humans are destined for a singularity in the Kurzweilian sense. And Kurzweil clearly was riffing on ideas that others had been laying down. She quotes a bunch of them in this book. Nor she thinks, does having a materialist outlook on the universe, here we might part ways with her, we'll be back to this, in, entails what Steven Weinberg, well-known physicist, said, for example, about the meaningless and the even hostility of the universe. Rather, she thinks you can have altruism, you can have meaning in human existence, etc., even if evolution is how everything came to be, and humans aren't destined for some grand evolutionary climax of ascension into Superman. Yeah. So she's interested in smashing those arguments and then taking a turn at the end based on her smashing of those arguments and some of their philosophical predecessors in the form of people like David Hume and Rene Descartes. Yeah. So that's really a basic overview of the book up until the conclusion. There there are some sub arguments She argues that religion is a meaning-making enterprise, and you don't have to have supernatural aspects to a religion to create a religion, insofar as a religion is a meaning-making exercise. She gestures to non-deistic religions as an example of this. She she takes it that we take religion primarily to involve notions of divinity in the West, because the dominant religions of the West for a few thousand years now— have been religions with divinities in them, but she notes that Shintoism, Buddhism, etc. don't function the same way, but nonetheless work as religions in the way she wants to categorize it, as meaning-making. And she distinguishes that from exercises in facts. Facts and values is a key distinction for her. Well, and so she argues that, okay, you're trying to make a religion out of this. Let's credit the fact that you're trying to make a religion. Your religion isn't making the valid moves that it needs to be to even cross the threshold of my minimalist version of religion, <laughs> which is A, an acceptable philosophical move, but B, sort of a philosophical jerk move, which is to be like, here's the lowest bar possible, you still fail. I put it as low as possible, it doesn't go any lower and you still can't do it. It's on the ground and you didn't even manage to step over Ooh. it. <laughs> that's That's harsh. The next thing that she does is she posits that the reason that scientists have been forward these concepts as religion is because, A, not even that they don't particularly like Christianity, but because they are socially awkward. And what she means by that is that part of the thing that you get if you have science as a religion is either you have a Superman complex that says everything that happens here isn't of particular consequence because we're going towards this concept of Superman, And so my relationships and my activities and my ethical responses to anything, my professional commitments are not particularly important because they are just one in the long chain of going towards Superman. Or alternatively, everyone is uh, in competition all the time. And so any sort of hostile or 
antisocial act that I do is justifiable because this is just how the world works. And she has a particularly nasty section where she basically says that this is just wish fulfillment for antisocial scientists trying to justify the fact that they can't handle the social responsibilities of the world and therefore are making up a version of the world where they don't have any social responsibilities. And they can just pursue power, etc. Yeah. Along anything, as when you don't have any responsibilities, you can do whatever you want. And so reading that, on the one hand, I was like, yeah. And on the other hand, I was like, wow, that's super cold and might not be representing their position <laughs> accurately. Like, So there is a touch of the straw man here. I can't put my finger on it, but there is a sense here where you're like, yeah, that's an emotionally satisfying argument. And also kind of maybe there's some things we could say about that. Right. I think my analysis of those passages is that she is not being a charitable reader because she's so angry at the other nonsense these people say. Yeah. And I think it is fair in many cases to say that the conclusions she draws about where their philosophy leads them are fair. They are, in fact, entailments of their philosophy mm. as they have it, but they're not things that those people would affirm. And there's always a challenge when arguing with people of wrestling with the question of whether you're fairly representing them versus fairly representing their argument. Because you can say, look, your argument is bad. This is where it leads without necessarily also saying, and you intend that of your argument, because yeah. lots of people who advance these views would say, no, 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 I'm horrified by that argument. And they're being quite sincere. They're saying, no, I want nothing to do with Nazism, for example, and some of the other things that are ultimately, she's not wrong, inextricable yeah. from these kinds of Nietzschean Superman pursuit of advancement, especially when combined with these social Darwinism. And I scare quote that because she's right to point out that Darwin himself, as he framed things, nothing wanted to nothing to do with that. We can argue whether they are actually natural entailments of what Darwin taught, but that's conversation for another time as well. The key is that you can look at someone and say, you've missed that an entailment of what you teach right. is this awful thing, that this is where this does inevitably lead without thereby saying, so that's what you believe. Ha, you're a monster on, underneath and actually. And I think that's where her mistake yeah. insofar as her treatment of these people is, is she thinks these people consciously affirm Although, the monster outcome, I mean, a few of them do. <laughs> I was about to say, Ruth and Claw people literally do affirm the monster outcome. Like, that's the whole point. There is no altruism, and any pretense to altruism is just a like, well, okay, remind me never to hang out with you. Yeah, I'm not interested in y'all. But I do think that there is a little bit of, uh, of over-the-top argumentation because... Harkening back to our conversation about Leotard and the postmodern condition, which was really just one long attack on Habermas, this is really just one long attack on Nietzsche. <laughs> In fact, the, she gives it away because she drops two lines about Nietzsche that are so entirely devastating that she doesn't go any farther. I was like, yeah, well, I, that's all you got to do, really. And so there's, there's a sense here that really who she's mad at is Nietzsche for causing all of this she's also mad at hume but she seems less mad at hume even even though she's mad at him and like actually i would sort of blame hume more than nietzsche but she she wants to go for nietzsche and nietzsche was the most direct idea of the superman and she's more concerned about the superman than the red and claw people and hume is more the red and claw people so i guess that's why now that i'm thinking about it but she goes against hume 
at the next part of the book, which made me happy because I do not like David Hume. <laughs> Stephen really doesn't if like you've Hume. If this podcast recently, you know that I am not a Hume guy. And so she really <laughs> goes for Hume. And because I know enough about Hume to know what she's talking about, I'm like, no, nah, that's fair. She's fair. <laughs> that's a thing. One other thing I'll note that she calls out, she she mentions a lot of people and interacts with a lot of people in this book. One of the interesting things I found was her sort of tentative, you almost got there, good job, guy, comments about Bertrand Russell, who's not someone I would have expected her to make that move with. But she's I like, know. yeah, you're you're kind of a, a guy who recognized that rationalism and empiricism can kind of live together and that there's room for values yeah. and good job, guy. And I was kind like, of. I mean, yeah, that's a fair... That's a fair characterization of Bertrand Russell, with whom I have a lot of other disagreements. Yeah, but... I mean, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. <laughs> we have right. some other arguments. But but she's right. He didn't make these specific mistakes. That's true. He did That's well. True. Yeah. I mean, insofar as this argument is concerned, he is not the enemy. And that actually turns to where she pivots near the end of the book. Russell is kind of her pivot point. Actually, Dobzhansky is her pivot point. She loves that guy. Dobzhansky is her, she likes that guy, but but Russell is her pivot point of, look, here's a guy who you guys want to claim is your own, but really he also recognized that there's room for awe and reverence and mystery in life. This is the move she makes in chapter 13. And... Then she she pushes on toward the end of the book. And and her claim here is that we need room for awe and reverence and mystery. We need room for something other the, than these right. notions of nature red in right. tooth and claw and the infinite ascent. So that when she gets to chapters 17 and 18, she can talk about, and these are the titles of the chapters, the limits of individualism and the vulnerable world and its claims on us. In the end, she is concerned to resist these notions of evolution as religion, of radical individualism, because it's really every man for himself. She, uh, she wants to make the pivot and a move that's actually very, very I similar know. to what Ursula Franklin made of saying there is a limit to individualism. You can't have everything be everyone for himself all the way down. It doesn't work. It's not an accurate depiction of how humans work. It's not even an accurate depiction of how elephants or dolphins or other things like that work. And then moreover, we're in this position of extraordinary power because of technology and the world is vulnerable, but it has claims on us. And those claims are things that that we are required to respond to. And I'll give you a hint about what we're going to say in the next episode, dear listeners. I really would have liked, out of this 191 pages, a book that were like 30 pages of the first 160 pages and uh, 160 yeah. pages that were those last two chapters because this is far and away the most interesting part of the book. It's a very interesting because she's being very careful not to make an equivalence between humans and their environmental surroundings. Mm -hmm. But she makes it very clear that humans who think they are independent of their environmental surroundings are doomed to die by environment's hand because that's just how it works. And so she is heavy on the concept of the real environment and particularly animals and the land. Plants and the biosphere, as well as animals, as she puts it. There you go. And yep. in particular, one thing I want to draw out here is that she gets here in the end to a discussion about rights and claims and duties. And she starts digging on John Stuart Mill and Immanuel Kant. And 
let's just say I didn't see that coming even up through chapter 16. And then boom, here's JSM and Kant. <laughs> I read this faster than Chris did for once. He usually finishes before I do. And I was like, oh, man, wait for this turn. It's awesome. And he was getting sick of it because I was getting sick of it. And then I got to 17. I was like, no, no, wait for it. Like I said, I would have been very happy with 130 pages of dis- yeah. I mean, I'm also reading a book on Augustinian liberalism and arguments about Rawlsian yeah. rights notions and all sorts of other things. So I am signed up for this right now, but also these are two easily the two strongest chapters in the book. Well, and the reason that she does this is because she argues that everybody else in the sciences has gotten on board with environmentalism mm-hmm. except the sociobiologist. And so she basically says like, look, I just spent a hundred and 35 pages trashing your initiative. Demolishing you, it's bros. It's over. Come over to environmentalism and stop ruining it for the rest of us. Dawkins, get over right. here. Get over here, Dawkins. Right. Get over here. <laughs> Dawkins. She only calls him out in one particular section, and she doesn't even reserve her highest scorn for him, but the whole book is essentially like, Dear Richard Dawkins, response to the selfish gene. You are the worst, your ideas are terrible, and you're ruining the world. Get back over here. Stop. Let me argue about everybody else that you might be tempted to quote so that you have no legs to stand on. You thought you had a leg there? No. You had a thought leg there? No. I read your book. I know what you're going to argue. I preempted it. Every single one. Now, let's talk about what I want to talk about because you lost. Now, unfortunately, Mary Midgley did not win and Dawkins kind of did win. And we're going to talk about it in our next episode. For next month's book, we're going to pick up the theme sort of as we've been talking about science quite directly both with franklin and with midgley and we're going to read carl sagan's novel and watch the corresponding movie contact yes we know dear listeners that wasn't remotely on the list of things we told you we were doing but we really can't handle going to technopoly straight after this sorry just it might not even happen Contact, however, will be a nice palate cleanser because fiction, because we get to watch a movie. Yay! So look forward to that. This week's music at the intro was Acquainted with the Night by Ezra Feinberg. We could probably say something witty about these philosophers being acquainted with the night or something, but I I don't have a good enough joke prepared. Red in tooth and claw. (laughs) Darkness. Thanks to Feinberg for letting us use it. Please do not use it yourself without permission, but go check it out. Maybe pay to download it because that's a good thing to do with music. It's a great album, Recumbent Speech. It's really chill and I like it a lot. It's one of my tops of the year so far. If you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly, or you can give directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Thanks to all who support the show. It's really great. We are able to host the show and uh, have our communication paid for, and it's really helpful. We appreciate you all. Speaking of communication, as we noted, we would love for you to email us at hello at winningslowly.org. You can also tweet at us at Winning Slowly. Find us on Facebook at Winning Slowly Podcast. In all three of those cases, most likely Stephen will respond, and most likely I won't, but if you pick the subject matter just right, I might respond after all. Good luck, listeners. You can also, if you're sponsoring at one of our slightly higher tiers on Patreon or give us a corresponding amount on Gash.me, join us in Twist, our social chat slash long-form discussion 
tool of choice. And to the listener who asked how much money it would take to be our benevolent overlord, <laughs> it's approximately $20 a month. <laughs> I think it might be a little higher than that for me. Okay, okay, 30. 30, yeah. <laughs> As always, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.